We're going to pick up Acts chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 26. So follow along with me, if you will. In verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these were all with one accord, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers, a crowd of about 120 people. And he said, Men and brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Hold on, my aunt's calling me. Sorry about that. I'll call her back. Him who became a guide who, to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Ekel Dama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his residence be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show us which of these two you have chosen to take his place in this ministry and this apostleship which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Would you bow your head with me one more time in prayer before we dive into this text? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for communicating to us who you are through a written word and through God the Spirit who you have sent to indwell our hearts in power and in influence and in teaching. We pray, Lord, tonight that you would speak to your people in the way that only you can. That you would, set, that you would set aside any, any opinions or preferences of my own. And I pray, Lord, that you, that you would just help me um, have clarity of thought and to speak in a linear way and to make sense of this passage and that it would be helpful and that it would be a bounty to the people who are here tonight listening. Forgive me for leaving my phone on in church. It will not happen again. Be with us as, as, we, guide, as we guide into this, into this scripture tonight, Lord. Help us to pay attention to every word and to not take for granted anything that you want to communicate to us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, this is our second Sunday getting into the book of Acts. And like I've said many times before, and I'm going to continue to say, we're going to be in this book for a long time. There's 28 chapters in this book. I don't know how long we're going to be in it. I don't know. I didn't know how long we were going to be in the book of John. We're just, we're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I told a friend of mine that, and who's also a preacher, and what he said to me in response was, we, you know the book of Acts is repetitive, right? And I, I must confess that when he said that, I thought, my, my first thought was, oh, shoot. 
The book of Acts is repetitive, and I hope that it doesn't get boring to people. And then I, I stopped that train of thought. I stopped that, and I, and I, I have to confess that. I, I don't, I don't want to think that way about Scripture. I don't want anyone to think that way about Scripture, but I do know that realistically it's a very easy thing to do. Um, but when my, when, my, when my buddy, who will remain nameless, when he said that, it also it made me think of something else that I heard a pastor say about the book of Acts. As he was preaching through chapter 2, I was listening to, to, him, to him preach, and he shared a story about him having a, a dialogue with some other guy And this guy said something about the book of Acts, and I I don't know what it was, but this pastor's response was, this guy had a woeful ignorance of the book of Acts, and he let me know it. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's a strong thing to say, a woeful ignorance of the book of Acts. But at the time, I, I, I had a woeful ignorance of the book of Acts. I've, I've, for much of my life, had a woeful ignorance of the entire Bible. And I, and I don't want that. I don't want to be someone who has a woeful ignorance of Scripture. And I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to, to be a, a teacher who leaves people with a woeful ignorance of, of Scripture, whether it be Acts or any other book. And that's, that's why I want to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, the, the, you know, the thing is, is that it is true. There's, you, you run into many of the same situations, a lot of the same sorts of dialogues. They're, they're, they all have their own, unique, uh, their own unique interactions. But there is a lot of the same thing going on over and over. But if there's, if there's repetition in Scripture, it's because God wants us to learn what's happening He wants us to get it in our head. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that comes by repetition. And so as time goes on, and I'm saying this to myself too, I don't want to come to a portion of scripture with the attitude of, well, we've heard this before, we've been there, we've done that. Maybe I can paraphrase this or just skip over it altogether. And I actually remember I tried that a couple of times in John. There's a few repetition, there's a few repetitive things in the gospel of John and each time I thought, I'm just going to jump over this. I'll make mention of it and then move on. It never worked because scripture is deep. It's so deep. And so even the things that we think, well, I've heard this before, there's always something to learn. And so I want to go through this slowly. I want to go through it intentionally. And I want to go through it again and again and again. It is repetitious. But blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of people I want Door of Hope people to be, who meditate day and night repeatedly on the word of God. And so here we are still in the book of Acts. We talked about it last week. This is a continuation of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the same story from a slightly different perspective. And in the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth physically after his ascension, the book of Acts is what follows. Him coming in power, him sending his Holy Spirit, him moving through the very people that he called, us, his Christians, empowering us, giving us his scriptures and telling us, giving us a commission to go and to preach to every creature, to baptize in the name of the Father, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts begins with an ascension. As we looked at last week, the ascension is not us losing Jesus. Jesus ascended into the clouds and it says that his followers were there standing, looking longingly into the sky and the two angels showed up and said, essentially, stop it. 
It's time to get to work. Don't, the, the Jesus, the same Jesus that left is going to come back in the same way that he left us. Now it's time to get to work. It's time to do something. Jesus' resurrection doesn't mean rest and relaxation right here and now. We have all the hope of the future and eternity and heaven. But right now, Jesus has given us something to do. And these angels say, go and do it. And Jesus said to them, go and wait. He said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Same Holy Spirit that he promised in the Upper Room Discourse in Luke chapter 24. And so the apostles go and they wait. The ascension is the way in which the Holy Spirit is sent. Jesus said, if I do not go, the Holy Spirit will not come. And so they are not losing Jesus. Jesus is going up back into heaven, but he sends his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God can indwell every single human being who is a believer all over the world. And as we see through the book of Acts, the gospel goes from this small little corner of Palestine all the way up north and all the way over to Rome, just in the book of Acts. And that's because God's spirit indwells every single human being in the deepest, darkest dungeon that anyone can ever be locked in. Even there, Jesus can be with you because he has sent his spirit. Jesus' ascension is the way that the spirit comes. And it's also a victory. It's proof that all of the things that quote-unquote went wrong during Jesus' ministry, all of the things that came against him, all of, the, all of the, the bad-mouthing from the Pharisees, all of the testing, all of the people who lied about him, all of the people who gave false testimony, the crucifixion itself, none of it defeated God's purposes. And in the very moment where Jesus looks as if he's defeated, looks as if he is at his weakest and most vulnerable point and completely out of control, he actually was bringing to fruition God's exact plan. And we're going to talk about that. That more tonight. Whenever Jesus cried out on the cross in John chapter 19, it is finished. He wasn't saying, I quit. I'm done. I'm, I'm through with this. I give up. Never mind. And he wasn't even saying, that's, that's good enough. This, this cross work, this redemption work, this being the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I've, I've done enough. I, I I could go further, but this is, this is close enough. It's fine. It's finished. I'm done. What he was saying was a victory cry. He was saying that as, as, as far as the work of God can possibly be done, it is done. It is finished. There is nothing that can be added to it. There is nothing that we humans can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Sin has been paid for. The sacrifice that is perfect has been made. It was him. It was his blood. It was his death. And his resurrection is the life, the proof of the life that he offers us, the perfect righteousness that he gives us. His crying out on the cross was an act of victory. And when he ascends and he sends the Spirit, he equips us with everything that we need to continue that work through his power. And this is not unique to the New Testament. It's, it's all through the Old Testament. You see this. I just wanted to give us a few examples so that we can see that all of the Bible is about Jesus and that everything that is in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, and it's a continuation. His work and what he has given us is a continuation of that. And I just want to give you a couple of these. There's a lot. But in Exodus chapter 14, famous story of Moses parting the Red Sea, which is an impossible thing for a human being to do. But if you read that account in Exodus 14 verse 16, the Lord is speaking to Moses. The people of Israel are railing against Moses. They've come against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are close behind them, and they're just beating Moses verbally. Why didn't you leave us in, in Egypt? You just brought us out here so that, you could, so that we could die. We were better off back there. What's wrong with you? You're a dummy, and you can't tie your shoes. And in verse 16, 
the Lord tells Moses, he says, as for you, raise up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea onto dry land. And skipping down to verse 21, Moses does as he's told. It says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and Yahweh swept the sea backwards with a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground so that the waters were split. So we read right there that Yahweh did this. The Lord split the sea, but yet Moses had a part to play. It was a, it was a seemingly insignificant part. It was a small part, but he was told to hold his hands up over the sea and the, and the waters parted. He had a small role to play, but he had something that he was supposed to do. Same is true in Exodus, just a, few, just a few pages after that in chapter 17. Really interesting account, a weird story. Israel goes up against Amalek. Joshua is leading the charge, and they go against, they go against Amalek. And the Lord tells Moses to raise up his hands in verse 11, chapter 17, verse 11. It says, so that when Moses raised his hand up, Israel prevailed against Amalek. But when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. And now Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on either side, and thus his hands were steady until the sun set. And so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So the interest, it's a really intriguing story. As long as Moses' hands were up, Israel was winning the battle. But as soon as <laughs> Moses' hands came down, then Israel began to lose. Again, it just speaks to the Lord is doing something, but Moses had a part to play. You see the same thing in, in the walls of Jericho. March around it seven times, blow the trumpet, give a loud shout. Is that what actually made Jericho's walls fall? And the answer is no. You can yell at a wall all day. You can march around it until kingdom come, and the walls are, that's not going to cause the walls to fall down. But we're being taught that we have a role to play. We have something, we have some part in the work that the Lord is doing. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he, and he commissioned us to do a work. It's a work that we are called to do, to proclaim the gospel, to baptize, to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done, and that there's salvation in no other name, and that there's a hope for you, that there's an eternity for you, that there is a God and that he is good, and that the Bible tells us what he is like. But even then, the real work is done by the Lord Himself, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul writes, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're supposed to preach the gospel. But the mystery of that and the power of that is far beyond us. It's far beyond us. And so Jesus told his disciples, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit because everything that you're going to do is going to be beyond your pay grade. It's going to be beyond your intellect. It's going to be beyond your power or your ingenuity. It's not something that you're going to be able to do on your own. It's the gospel. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's our responsibility to preach it. It's our responsibility to show the world the ramifications and the ripple effects of a life changed by the gospel. But those who water are nothing. Those who plant are nothing. It's God who gives the growth. And this is the commission that Jesus left with his disciples. And this is why he told them to wait those 10 days. Because if they started getting busy on their own volition and their own power and their own intellect, they wouldn't have gotten anything done. 
And so they wait, and we see what they're doing while they're waiting. Verse 12, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey, I just want to make a note of this. That is, the, that is an amount of distance. It's the amount of, of, of distance that one was allowed to travel on the Sabbath according to the traditions of the elders. And we actually have, I just for fun, I brought a slide that I think should be here. Uh, there it is. So in the book of Numbers, chapter 1 and, and following, there's a breakdown of, of ancient Israel where the tabernacle is supposed to be, and then the 12 tribes of Israel are supposed to camp around the tabernacle. And so what's interesting is the tribes that are the furthest away from the tabernacle, as tradition holds, is that they were no more than, than 2,000 cubits or 3,000 feet, which is about half, between a half and three quarters of a mile. And so that became a Sabbath day's journey because that's how far they had to walk to get to the tabernacle to worship. And you will not find this, this rule or this law in the Old Testament. This was an extra rabbinical rule that they just made up. They said, well, since in Numbers, the furthest somebody had to walk to get to the tabernacle was about three quarters of a mile, that's as far as you're allowed to walk, between half and three quarters of a mile. Anything beyond that is breaking Sabbath rules. It's, it's, it's violating the no work rule of the Sabbath. It was just something that they made up on their own, but it became known as a Sabbath day's journey, which means that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, which was somewhere between a half mile and three quarters of a mile from the city of Jerusalem. That's just sort of a fun fact, but that's all, that's all there is to it. And I think it goes to show that this Otheophilus that this book is written to, the first account, O Theophilus, that I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach, chapter one, verse one, this Theophilus was not a Jewish person, otherwise he wouldn't need these kinds of details. He would understand the layout of Jerusalem. A lot of commentators use that as saying that he was a Gentile, he must have been some sort of Roman, but I wonder if Theophilus was not a Jewish person, which maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, I don't really care, it doesn't matter, but I wonder if he wasn't, would he know what a Sabbath day's journey is? Would he have read that and gone, I'd I have no idea what that means. These are just things that you come across that make you think whenever you read the Bible closely. But it doesn't really matter. Somewhere between half of a mile and three quarters of a mile away, they traveled back from the mount called Olivet. Verse 13, and when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they had been staying. And that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Their names are written down through the Gospels. Their names are written down here. And when I read this, it made me think in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, the, the disciples are sent out. Jesus sends them out with power. They have power to heal. They have power to cast out demons. And they come back from the missionary journey. And they're excited and they're joyful. And they tell Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, do not rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the demons and, and, these, and these spiritual entities are subject to your authority, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And it just, it was a sobering reminder, reading these guys' names in verse 13, that it's, we're, our names are written in the kingdom of heaven. That's a radical thing to rejoice in. That's a radical thing to be aware of. That just like these names are recorded here, our names are recorded in heaven just like this. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think that you are beyond this world because of the work that Jesus did on the cross? 
Because Colossians chapter 1 promises us that when we are in him, when we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we are given his perfect righteousness. We receive from him the life that is his. It is not ours, but it's given to us as a gift. And our names are written down in heaven and we are safe for all of eternity. If we have an inheritance, Peter says, that is pure, it is undefiled, it is imperishable, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you who are being guarded in faith. Do you ever think about that? These, these disciples, as we're going to see through the book of Acts, these disciples' lives here on earth is really not awesome. They have a lot of joy. There's a lot to rejoice in. But their physical conditions, every one of the disciples of Jesus died a horrible death. John got out of straight-up martyrdom, but he was tortured almost to the point that he died. And then he was banished to an island. But our names are written in the book of heaven. And we're going to hit that again and again and again. The hope that we have in Jesus, the cause for joy that we have because of the work of Jesus, the security that we have because of the work of Jesus. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you were born again, if you were saved, your names are written in the book of heaven. And just one more, just a note on technicality, this last name, Judas, the son of James. If you read Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, verse 3, Judas is the name Thaddeus. You don't see Judas before in, in the names. This isn't, a, this isn't, there was two Judases in the 12 disciples. And I, can you imagine being named the other Judas? It would have been a bummer. But his name is also Thaddeus. He's known as Thaddeus in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you read that and you're like, where does this Judas come from? Judas, the son of James. Well, that's also the disciple Thaddeus. So verse 14. And these all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The disciples were told to wait, to go back to Jerusalem, and in the time that they had, we see what they're doing here. They're devoted in one accord to prayer. I was just confessing this to Angie today, earlier, that Door of Hope, I think, does a really good job in emphasizing the need for prayer and actually making available opportunities to get into prayer. Every Wednesday... And every Saturday morning, Wednesdays at 6 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m., there's a group here that meets for prayer for an hour. And then we do, we do several 21-day stretches every single day, 21 days in a row of prayer. And I would encourage you guys to come. It's, it's 6 a.m. It's at 7 a.m. on the weekends. It's hard to get out of bed and make that a discipline. I'd like to use my newborn daughter as an excuse, but I was making excuses even before she was born. It's a really good opportunity to start the day right and to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and to get into the community. And, and Scripture emphasizes the importance of it. Here these guys are. They could be doing anything, but they're, ra- they're waiting and they're praying. And so here, Mary and the women and Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers are, are James and Joseph and Simon and Jude. You can read that list in Matthew chapter 13. And it doesn't surprise me that he goes by the name Jude because Jude's real name is actually Judas. Can you imagine being Jesus' own brother and your name being Judas? But here his brothers are. And it's noteworthy that his brothers are here because we just maybe six or eight months prior to this event, his brothers did not believe in him. If you read John's gospel in chapter 7, it says in verse 5 that his, his brothers are actually telling Jesus Go do your miracles in Jerusalem. Get out of Galilee. Get out of the sticks, man. You got to go to the city. You got to go to where everything's happening, where all the people are, where there's action and there's cameras and there's people and everything's hip. If you're going to get followers, if you're going to make an impact, if you're going to be known, then take your miraculous powers and go to Jerusalem, man. That's what you've got to do. But then in verse 5, it says, they were telling him this because they did not believe in him. 
which is a really interesting statement. That's for a different sermon at a different time. They believed that he had power and that maybe he was some sort of political entity, but that is not what he was interested in. He was interested in being, he is king of the world. He was not just trying to overthrow Roman rule. But here, his brothers are present. His brothers are believers. And James in particular is probably the reason, because we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and following, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to 500 people at once, and he appeared to his brother James, and that's probably where James became a Christian. And then James told his brothers, and these guys went from just believing that their brother was some sort of weirdo to believing everything that he actually said and that he is God in the flesh, which would have been a really humbling thing to admit about your own brother. But here they are. And James goes on to prominence. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and when we, get to, when we get to Acts chapter 15, we see that he's actually there in the Jerusalem council who's saying that this gospel that came from the Hebrews, this gospel that is rich throughout the history of Israel, is also for the Gentiles. We need to let the Gentiles into this hope, this gospel. It's not just for us. It's also for them. It was James that made that announcement in Acts chapter 15. He played a prominent role, but he also paid dearly for his faith in Jesus we're told in, throughout history, the historians record that James was actually thrown out of a tower or maybe off a tower, and he hit the ground, and he was almost dead, but he wasn't quite, and so his murderers took the opportunity to throw stones on him until he was dead. He was martyred at a fairly young age for his faith in Jesus. So these are some of the characters that we're going to follow here. And so if you're reading through this story... What are we talking, like, why are we, why are we talking about this? I'm talking about a lot of technical stuff. I'm, I'm filling in a lot of details. And part of that is because I want us to know this book in detail. And part of it because, is because Luke is trying to share something with us by putting in this, this sort of random interruption of the narrative of what's happening here. Jesus ascends into heaven. He promises that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent. And then in chapter 2, Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit does come in power but in the middle, verses 12 through 26, we have sort of this interruption. We have this detail about what the disciples are doing. Peter gets up and he starts to say some stuff about Judas. And then there's a, there's a, a replacement for Judas who is dead at this point. He's left the Lord. He, he, he betrayed him. He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He did not repent. He hung himself and he died. And we have a hint here as to why this interruption, why this kind of strange story is right in the middle of the narrative. And part of it, part of that hint is right here in verse 15. There's something about Peter that we need to, be, that we need to pay attention to. In those days, verse 15, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers, a crowd of about 120 people, and he said, Men and brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. If you know anything about Peter, and if you have any, any history on his life story, then you know right from the get-go that there's something different about Peter. Because Peter has kind of been, a, I say this with respect, and I put myself in the same boat, Peter's kind of been a bumbling dummy for, from the beginning. He's been a very humble fisherman, and every time he opens his mouth, he makes it very clear that he has hardly any idea what's going on. And all of a sudden, he stands up and he starts to preach. This is new language for Peter, to stand up and say the scriptures had to be fulfilled that were spoken by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. It's like, who is this guy? What happened to him? This is the same Peter. Remember, this is the same Peter who got in Jesus' face 
and said, when Jesus was predicting that he was going to be handed over to sinners, that he was going to be persecuted, that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to die, Peter objected and said, this is not going to happen, Jesus. There is no way this is going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. And Jesus grabbed Peter by the shoulders and said, get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. This is the same Peter who denied Jesus explicitly with expletives and with an oath. Not, not many weeks before this event. This is the same Peter who saw Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and jumped in the water to swim to him because he, he didn't have any patience to take the boat ride there. He's been an impetuous, crazy guy throughout all the gospel accounts, and all of a sudden he shows up with wisdom. He's speaking with power. He's apparently the, the leader of the disciples He's a changed man. Remember, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after he raised from the dead. And in that 40 days, Jesus must have sat down with Peter and shared something with him that Peter finally clicked it. He finally got it. The Bible study of Luke chapter 24, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus takes the time to show in all the places in the Old Testament that, re- that speak of him, that all of the Old Testament does in fact speak to Jesus. And now Peter is here saying, listen, the days that we have lived, the things that we have seen, everything that we have experienced, the things that Jesus did was fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. All of the Old Testament was speaking to him, about him, prophesying that he was going to come, that he was going to do the very things that he did. And so scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter is lit up. He is bold because he knows his Bible. And I'm a, I'm a Bible preacher, man. I don't want to quote a bunch of people from a bunch of different novels and a bunch of different walks of life. I, wanna, I want to know what the Bible has to say. I want the words of Christ to dwell richly in me. I want the boldness that comes from knowing my Bible. And I want to preach in a way that people know their Bible. That's why when my friend said, you know, Acts is repetitive. After, you know, I thought about it for a minute. I was like, I, good. Good. It needs to be. And if it wasn't, then we should read it again and again and again so that it becomes repetitive. We need to know what the Bible says. We need to be people who are disciplined. I mean, cut out something. Listen to the Bible when you're at the gym, when you're in the car. Get up earlier, stay up later. I've made a habit to, you know, my my daughter, she's a month old now, and she insists on screaming and yelling at all hours of the day. And so I've just made a habit of reading the Bible to her. And sometimes I only get, you know, a paragraph or, or, or so into it before she, re- you know, I really got to stop and get her a bottle or something. But I, I just make it work. I've been, I've been convicted by that. How much time I spend watching Mr. Ballin videos or skate videos or something. And I, and I just read. I'm just saying, guys, read the Bible. I'm just telling you, not as a pastor, but as a pastor, but also as a friend and just a guy who's in the church, read your Bibles. Peter understood the scriptures and it changed him. It changed him. It took him from being this sloppy, lost, bumbling dude to being an executor of scripture, sharp, authoritative. He knows what's going on. And he gives us a hint here as to how the Bible was written, how the Bible is inspired through the hands and through the ink of fallen men. He says that who, how the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David about the things concerning Judas. This is how the Bible came to be. 
This is how the Bible is written. The Holy Spirit, I don't know exactly how he did it, but the Holy Spirit filled people with inspiration and they wrote down what they were inspired to write down. And scripture was the result. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed, that somehow there's a mystery. Somehow men wrote letters, men wrote down stories, men recapped what happened in the history of Israel and the history of Jesus' life and the letters that are full all the way through the New Testament. And they were somehow written very normally with ink, on papyrus, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit was inspiring the words that were written. And all of Scripture is God-breathed. And this same Peter would go on to write in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how Scripture came to be. I don't know all of the details of how that works, but God spoke through people through his spirit, and we have the infallible, immutable word of God. What we also see here is that Jesus was never a victim. Jesus never lost control. He never lost power. He never didn't know what was going on. And that means a lot of things, but it at least means this. He knew what Judas was going to do. He wasn't bamboozled by Judas. He knew who Judas was when he picked him. In John chapter 6, the story, the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then everybody coming to him and saying, hey, we want, we want breakfast now, thanks for, thanks for lunch, 24-hour period later, now we're, now we're looking for some more food. And Jesus said, it's not about real food, it's not about physical bread, it's not about physical drink, it's about eternal bread. I am the sustenance of all of eternity. My, my flesh is true bread, it's true food. My blood is true drink. You need to partake of me to live forever. Get your eyes off the physical and lift your eyes up to the spiritual. And in John 6, 66, it says that most of the people left. Most of the people were like, that's not what we came here for. We just wanted a free meal and they peaced out. And people are still doing that in the church this very day. And Jesus turns to his 12 followers and he says, are you also gonna leave? And Peter, in a moment of more clarity than what he usually has, says, where else are we gonna go? Even if we don't understand what you're talking about, where else are we gonna go? Because you alone have the words of life. And in verse 64, Jesus says, there are some of you who still do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe in him, and he knew who it was who was going to betray him. And in John, John 6, <clears throat> excuse me, John 6, verse 70, we read this. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he knew who he was, who was one of the 12, and he knew that Judas was the one who was going to betray him. And that means so many things. That means that the Old Testament speaks about Jesus to such a, to such a degree that it actually, David's did not, David didn't know what he was writing. He didn't know that Judas was gonna be this guy who was gonna sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and yet he wrote in Psalms versus Psalm 41 that you will lift up one of my own has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He was never caught off guard. He went forward with the work of the cross, knowing that Judas was there all the while. He was always in control. When Jesus was on the cross, pinned there, and everybody was mocking him and jeering at him, telling him if he could save so many other people, how about you save yourself, Jesus, if you're so big and you're so powerful, and yet he remained because he was in control. He wasn't weak. He wasn't defeated. He wasn't victimized. At the very moment that all of his followers thought that God's plan was coming to an end, it was God's plan coming to fruition. It was his plan coming to completion. 
That was the work that Jesus cried out, it is finished, but nobody realized it. Nobody knew it. That's the power that Jesus has. That's the love that he has. He did that for us. And it also tells us Jesus was never victimized. He was always in control. He died exactly when he was supposed to die. His legs were not broken, which fulfills, this, <clears throat> fulfills another prophecy, Psalms 34, that the sacrificial lamb should not, not have any broken bones. And Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he died when he was supposed to. They didn't break his legs. Instead, Pilate, Pilate, this is interesting, Pilate ordered that his legs be broken, all three of them, and instead the Roman soldiers broke the thief's legs on the left and the right, but they didn't break Jesus' legs. Why? Because Jesus was still in control. Jesus was still fulfilling prophecy. And so instead they pierced his side, which also fulfilled prophecy, Zechariah 12.10. They looked on him whom they had pierced. Every moment of Jesus' life, every moment of his death, he was in control. And I want you to realize that because he did that for you. It was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. But one of the, one of the really powerful elements of this as well that's easy to miss and easy to look over is that when Judas betrayed Jesus, <clears throat> the night of the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you in this group, one of you in this room is going to betray me. And all the 12 looked around saying, who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? Surely it's not going to be me. They didn't know who it was going to be. And all sorts of Bible commentators and all sorts of pastors and preachers get up and they say, oh man, Judas must have been really deceptive. He must have been a a, a master manipulator. He must have been a master liar. What a a wild kind of dude that that guy must have been. And that's true. But I think more importantly is that when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, nobody nudged the dude next to him and said, I bet it's the guy that Jesus is always bad-mouthing. I bet, it's the, I bet it's Judas. You ever notice that Jesus just has a chip on his shoulder? Jesus doesn't empower Judas with any of the things he's empowered. Judas didn't have powers to cast out demons. Judas didn't have power to proclaim anything about Jesus. Judas didn't have power to heal. I mean, Judas was given the, the job of being the treasurer between the 12. And what that means is that Jesus knew every day of his public ministry that Judas was a manipulator, he was a liar, he was a thief, He was a betrayer, and Jesus never treated him any differently. And that cuts my heart. That convicts me really, really hard. Jesus is so good and so kind that even knowing what Judas was going to do, Jesus never snubbed him, never left him out, never didn't include him, but invited him to be a part of the family. I chose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Jesus was not bamboozled. He was not caught off guard. He was not surprised. And yet he patiently loved Jesus, all, loved Judas all the way to the end. We've got to move on or we're going to be here for an hour. But I love that. I love that. Je- Jesus never treated Judas any differently. The, prophet, the prophets had to be fulfilled. Scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas that came from the mouth of David. Everything had to be fulfilled. Verse 17, for he was counted among us. Judas was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. It's amazing. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was, was, was accounted among the transgressors. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus took his place on the cross between two thieves. He was killed as any common criminal. And yet Judas, who was a criminal all the way to the end, was given a place in the most intimate relationship with Jesus here on earth. 
He was given a share in this ministry. Verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines gushed out. When Judas, you know the story, when Judas realized that things, you know, we don't really know what Judas had in mind, but as soon as Jesus was actually arrested and started to get beaten and it looked like he wasn't going to get out of it, Judas was full of regret. He'd never repented. Matthew 27, you can read the account. He went back to the religious leaders. He threw the money at their feet. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. And they said, tough. Nobody cares. See to it yourself. And so overcome with grief, he hanged himself. And we don't know all of the details. Matthew tells us that, Jesus, that, that Judas hung himself. And we, we read here that he fell headlong uh, and he burst open in the middle and his guts fell out. And it's not a contradiction of account, it's just supplemental. He hung himself, and somehow, at some point, that hanging also involved his guts bursting open. A lot of people theorize that maybe the rope broke, maybe the branch broke, Judas fell some distance, and his guts spilled out. It really doesn't matter. It's a, it's a horrifying story. This is a guy who was in the church. This is a guy who followed Jesus. This is a guy, this is, you know, this, this is the burden that I have. Christian churches send evangelists all over the world to proclaim the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. And I say yes and amen to that. It's, the, it's what we're supposed to do. My personal burden is to, is to preach to people who sit in the pews and go to the Bible studies and do the bake sales and, and, the, and, and the prayer studies and all the rest and don't realize that they're a Judas. They think that their works are saving them. They're pharisaical or they're just duped. They go to church, they don't cuss or smoke or chew, and so they think that they're in. Friends, it's the burden of my life. The Bible tells us to test ourselves, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do we actually believe in Jesus? Do we confess him as Lord and Savior? Are we repenting of our sins? Or do we believe in Jesus in some intellectual way, the same way that the devil does? Because we're told in the the James The book of the Bible that Jesus' brother wrote said, so you believe that God is one good for you, even the demons believe and they shudder. And I remember the first time that I came to realize I've grown up in the church my whole life. I've assumed I was a Christian. My parents were Christians. My community was Christians. I went to Christian places and went to Christian events. Doesn't mean that I'm a Christian. Scared me straight. I was 30 years old. Scared me straight. And I I can't answer that question for you, but Judas was right there and nobody, nobody looked at him and went, that's, that's a false dude. He's a liar, he's a manipulator. Scripture tells us to check ourselves. Friends, that's a question you have to ask yourself. Who is Jesus to you really? Is he your parents' God? Is he the God that your community believes in? Who is he to you personally? Because Judas went to his own place. He killed himself. He betrayed Jesus, and he didn't repent. Verse 19, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field that was purchased was called Hakladama, and that is the field of blood, for it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. That psalm had been fulfilled. That prophecy had come to fruition. Psalm 69, 25, let his residence be made desolate and let no one else dwell in it. And let another man take his office. That's Psalms 109, verse 8. Let another man take his office. That was the prophecy. That was the scripture that was just about to be fulfilled, which is the other reason why this little interruption here in the narrative is there. We see that Peter has been changed. Peter has been 
has been turned around by these 40 days that he spent with Jesus post-resurrection and this, this empty spot, this seeming flat tire, because Jesus said there's going to be 12 of you. You're going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That had to take place, and so there needed to be a 12th guy. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 19. It was necessary for that spot to be filled. Verse 21, so it was necessary that of the men who had accompanied us all that time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John all the way until the day he was taken from us. One of these must become a witness with us to the resurrection. So someone who had been with Jesus from, the resurrection, from, the, from his uh, baptism all the way to the culmination of his ministry when he ascended into heaven, which means that of the people that are the disciples, the apostles, that wasn't the only people that were following him. There was, many, there was many disciples. There was only 12 apostles. And so they put two men forward. Whoops. They, only, they put two men forward. Joseph, who was called Barsabbas, also called Justice. Justice is, is, is the Latin name for Barsabbas. And this is just for your notes, if you're taking notes. Barsabbas means son of Sabbath, or son of the Sabbath is another way. Joseph, son of Sabbath, or Justice in Latin, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you who know all hearts, show which of these two men you have chosen. I love that the first thing that these guys do is they pray. They say that you, Lord, are the one who knows all hearts. The Lord does not look at the outside. He looks at the inside. And here's two dudes who look the part. And there's lots of stories of this in the Old Testament, lots of stories of of, of the Lord not looking on the outside, but knowing what's on the inside. And most notably is, uh, in, is, the, is the story of, of, of King David, the, the runt of the litter. Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. The Lord says, of the sons of Jesse, one of them is going to be king. So go there and I'll show you which one. And so Jesse gets supposedly all of his sons and he brings them up. And Samuel takes the, the, a look at the first son, Eliab. And it says, when Eliab had come in, he looked on him and he thought, surely this is the Lord's, the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Don't look at him because he's attractive. Don't look at him because he's tall. I've rejected him because I'm looking at his heart. And son after son after son is rejected and rejected and rejected. And Samuel says to Jesse, are these all your boys? And, and Jesse goes, well, there's the runt of the litter, David. But I mean, you know, it's David. Come on, he's out watching the sheep. Samuel says, bring him in. King David, a man after God's own heart. In John chapter 2 Jesus is in Jerusalem doing miracles, and it says at the, very end of the, at the very end of the chapter, verses 23 to 25, that many were believing in him because of the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He did not need anyone to give testimony about people because he himself knew what was in people. He knew that the belief of those people was superficial, that they were really enthused by the miraculous, but they had zero care and who he was. They, had, they, had, they were indifferent to him being king. They were indifferent to him being the savior of the universe, the savior of them from their sins. They had no concern for that, but they were really into the miracles. It's a theme that follows all the way through John, from chapter one to, to, the, to the very end, all the way to chapter 21. 
a right belief in Jesus. Jesus knows what's in people. The Lord knew what was in these two men's hearts. And so the disciples prayed. And after they prayed, verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. Casting lots was the Old Testament way of doing things. I don't recommend it now. We've been given the Holy Spirit. He came at Pentecost. He's alive inside of you. We have the full counsel of Scripture. If you're looking at what job to take, which school to go to, which girl to marry, which guy to marry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest rolling dice. But in the Old Testament economy, that's the way that they did things. And I want to give a few examples of those, and then, and then we'll close out. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And speaking to our situation here with these two men, Proverbs 18, 18 says, the lot puts an end to quarrels and it decides between two powerful contenders. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, before David was King Saul, and the way that King Saul was found and was anointed was by casting lots. You can read the story in 1 Samuel 10 and following. By casting lots, the tribe of Benjamin was taken, and then by casting lots, the matriarch family in the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And then by casting lots, Saul from the matriarch family, the son of Kish, was decided to be king. And even for a man who was hiding sin, for a man who was hiding from the Lord, it was by lot that he was found. And Joshua, the sin of Achan, Joshua chapter 7, it's an incredible story. I'm actually going to, if I have it here, I'm going to read it to you. Joshua chapter 7, Israel is, in, is at war, they're going to battle, and the Lord tells them, when you go to battle and you defeat your enemies, do not take anything for yourself. Devote everything for destruction. Burn it all. It's all to be gotten rid of. And a guy named Achan kept a little bit of the stuff for himself. He saw a little bit of the goods, a little bit of the gold, and he decided, you know what? No one will know. I'm going to take that. I'm going to do this little sin. I'm going to hide it. No one's going to know about it. I'm going to bury it under my tent. And then Israel lost a battle. And Joshua goes to the Lord and he says, what, what's going on here? And the Lord says, there's sin in the camp. This is a lesson for us. The Bible tells us that be sure your sin will find you out. You'll get caught or you'll confess it. That'll always happen. Especially if you're a Christian and you've got some hidden sin, there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness available. You will get caught or you'll confess it. I've done things in my life that I thought, there's really no way for that Bible verse to come true. There's no way that anyone's actually going to know that I'm doing this. It's impossible for everyone to, to anyone to know. There's no one around. I'm by myself. It's in the dark. No one's ever going to see it. And you know how people found out? I told them. I confessed it. I confessed it. I brought it to the light. Confessed it to my wife. Confessed it to my pastors. You cannot hide. You cannot sit on unrepentant sin. God the Spirit will drive it out of you. And it's, it's freeing. It's a good thing. But for Achan, he hid it. And it says that in the morning, the Lord speaking to Joshua, he says, in the morning, you shall come near by all of your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which Yahweh takes by lot, that tribe shall come near then by family and then by family shall come by household and then by household, Yahweh will take man by man. And it will be that the one who has taken the things devoted to destruction shall be burned with fire, he and all that belong with him. Achan was found by, cast, by a casting of lots. Tribe by tribe, family by family, and then man by man. And so these disciples, they pray. 
Lord, you know the heart of all men. They cast lots. Don't exactly know how they cast lots, but the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. And thus concludes Acts chapter 1. And, I, and I, I, want to, I want to just say at the end here, I, it was Tim Keller who said that, he said, you can't preach without teaching, but you can teach without preaching. And there's an ongoing, there's an ongoing discussion about what's the difference between a teacher and a preacher. And I'm on the side of Keller. I'm like, well, you, you can certainly teach without preaching. That's certainly true. You can, you can pull up slides. You can talk about Numbers chapter 2, and here's the tabernacle, and there's all the camps, and you can do them by name and how many people were in each camp, and you can talk about Old Testament scripture and how we have 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone, and that's more than any other, any other ancient manuscript. And you can teach, and you can teach, and you can teach. And you, can, and you can do it without preaching. But I, I am convinced that you can't properly preach without teaching. And I'm going to try throughout the duration of Acts to, to find that line of telling you, you guys every single Sunday that Jesus is Lord of the universe. He is God in the flesh who came as the Lamb of God to save us from our sins. That we are sinners who deserve punishment, who deserve hell, who deserve death. Because God's law is immutable and it's perfect and God's requirements for his subjects in heaven is perfection. And we can't make that. We can't do that. James says if you keep the whole law but sin in one area, you've fallen short of the whole thing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that should scare us. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount Sunday mornings and that should scare us. You've heard, it, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. Well, there it is. There's every human born ever. Angry and lustful. We've fallen short. And that's terrible news. And maybe it would behoove us to sit in that uncomfortable place for a while and realize that we are sinners who deserve wrath. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. He never sinned in word or thought or deed. He didn't abolish the law of the Old Testament. He fulfilled it in every form. Every ceremonial law, every civil law, every moral law, all of the Old Testament points to him. He fulfilled it beginning by just coming. He didn't just come and die. He didn't just come and live. He came and he lived and he died. And he endured the cross for the joy set before him, the joy of going back into eternity with his Father and the joy of bringing you with him. And there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which there is salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through him. There is forgiveness. There is grace in the name of Jesus Christ. And this, this, this book of Acts, this story, this narrative, is the story of that gospel going from a tiny little part of the world, a real place on earth, a real time in history, going forth to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And so I hope you come back next week to learn about the Bible, to learn about the proclamation of the gospel, and to, and to hear about how good and how patient and how kind and loving Jesus is. He's good. Amen? Amen.